0: Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let's do an experiment, okay? Many of us memorized these verses when we were little kids, and they're still in our brains, so let's see if we can remember it in the King James Version. I beseech you, therefore... Come on, say it with me. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Come on, speak up. Start over. Start over. It's the King James. All right. I beseech thee, therefore, brethren, that ye, by the mercies of God, Come on, come on. Now stop, Bob. You guys don't know the second verse? Seriously. You got to memorize them both, okay? And B, I mean, if there was ever a day and place in the world in history that we need verse two of chapter 12, it's now. And B, not conform to this world, but be ye transformed by coming to Trinity Reformed Church, <laughs> by the renewing of your mind, go ahead, Bob, unleash you. you sent God, which is your yeah, 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 you, nah, you blew it. We're talking verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Bob, you fail. He's a physician, so he can handle it, you know. Does anybody know the rest of verse two? Do you know it? This is weird. The first service, we had a ton of people that knew both verses. That you may test and prove what is that good? And do you know by what comes next? By the grace given to me, I say to you, do not. Yeah, that's good. Jason and you both, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think soberly. Yeah. And see, we have this wonderful gift today that has been given to us called Facebook. And Facebook is a software program that's perfectly designed in order to cause us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, but to be of sober judgment. You know how J.B. Phillips translated that second verse? Does anybody know? I'm sorry, I forget I have this on. Do you know how J.B. Phillips paraphrased that second verse? Does anybody know? Yeah, go ahead, Janice. Press you. Yeah, do not allow the world around you to squeeze or to press you into its mold. And that is social media. You know, it just is relentless. It gives you facial tics. So every week I give a sermon, a title. I always title it by the text, not by my own words, but I use the words from Scripture because I figure that helps me to remember some part of the text. And so this week I was finding it particularly hard to remember what the text was. And so I gave this sermon the title, Therefore. (laughs) <laughs> That's the title this time. Therefore, what on earth? Why therefore? Well, I'll tell you in a second, but first let's hear the word of God, which is eternally true. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable which is your spiritual, your logical service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, feed us from your word now, we pray. May the words of this faulty and sinful man and the thoughts on all of our sinful hearts, may they be purified and made acceptable by your truth, we pray, O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we had a passage that was all about worship, you remember, and we said that this was the end of the first 11 chapters of Romans. Um, So now we've moved to chapter 12. You know, there weren't verses or chapters in the original letter. It just kept going from paragraph to paragraph. And so this is the first statement of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. As soon as he gets done opening up God's plan of salvation. So the first 11 chapters are the Apostle Paul opening up the truths of God's plan of salvation. Okay? And then he says... Glory to God. Then he says, therefore. And this is habitual with the Apostle Paul. He's constantly, in his letters, opening up doctrinal truths, all right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, all right? He goes through the doctrine. And then he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, that you present your living bodies. And then he opens up in the rest of the book what it means for you to present your body to God. Okay? All right. Now, I want to go on a 20,000-foot-high flight through the first 11 chapters so that you feel the weight of this word, therefore. Okay? So let's start the flight. The first 11 chapters start, you remember, in chapters 1, 2, and partly chapter 3, you remember that whole section has to do with the wickedness of the world. He starts by talking about the wrath of God against all ungodliness. Then he says, okay, you want to know what ungodliness is? I'll start with the Gentiles. And he talks about how the Gentiles give themselves to idolatry that instead of looking at the beauty of the creator and the diversity of the rainforest and sexuality, manhood and womanhood and all this stuff, that the pagans, the Gentiles, have decided that they're gonna worship the creation and forget the creator. And so they show all this uh, really sophisticated and what is almost a synonym for sophisticated, which is decadent, this decadent worship of God's creation. And that decadent worship keeps descending down, down, down until it gets to homosexuality. And that's the supreme expression of the degradation of idolatry. That you can't even bring yourself to love a woman. <laughs> oh my goodness, I just realized this as I'm preaching. I mean, think about that. What is worshiping the creation rather than the creator but self-worship? It's narcissism. And what is the ultimate expression of narcissism but a woman loving a woman and a man loving a man? You can't even love a woman. It's awful. And then knowing that he's got the Jews right in the palm of his hand because he's shown the degradation of the Gentiles, those lawless, filthy, uncircumcised people. He says, and you, and he turns to the Jews, and you, you think you're so special. You who say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Ho, ho, ho. and of course, all God's people who are truthful say, hey, yep, about 100 times a day. Because we live after the Sermon on the Mount, after the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so then he opens up the wickedness of the Jews. And the wickedness of the Jews is always worse than the wickedness of the Gentiles. And the reason is the Jews knew better You remember that Jesus said, to whom much is given, much shall be required. That's why I, no matter how low you got, as you ran from God, I'm worse than you because I grew up in godly home. And I ran. And that's filthy. That's that's awful, awful, awful. And the Jews were sons and daughters of God and they ran from God and they refused to obey him and it was awful. And so he opens up the the sin of the Gentiles, the world, and then he opens up the sin of the Jews. And when he gets done opening up the sin of the Jews... Then he opens up the fact that nobody can be saved by their own good works, their own values, their own law, their own righteousness, their own... And again, as Christians, we're prepared to be very perceptive about the bankruptcy of the morality of Gentiles, you know, or worldlings, people who don't believe. And so occasionally I lampoon single-use plastic bags. You know, I say, isn't this something? This is what the world has devolved to, where the way you parade your righteousness is by bringing a cloth bag to the supermarket. And we all laugh. But then you look at littering laws, you know? You look at laws having to do with global warming and how many, how many gallons or liters you can have in your toilet. You know? And all this, this endless, you know. I never forget looking on uh, what used to be known as Jordan Avenue, which we've all repented of, okay. I remember being there a block up from Sample Gates, and there was a law enforcement officer standing at the stop sign looking into the laps of people driving by. Why was he there? He was there to make sure that he would give a ticket to anybody that didn't have their seatbelt on. Now, of course, I'm, you know I'm not against seatbelts, but we look at the morality of the world, and we just laugh, because at the same time as they're being very rigid about seatbelts and global warming and how many gallons you have in your toilet and whether you know, all this stuff, single-use plastics, all this stuff, right? We have our own set of good works. What are they? Well, they have to do with educating our children We don't send our children to public school. Well, not unless it's up in Partyville, where everybody's a Christian, you know. In other words, we show our values by training our children up in the way they should go, knowing that when they're old, they don't depart from it. We show our law-keeping by how. We're in church Sunday morning. We're not... not We're not thankful that we can go to the soccer match, you know, and, and, and escape church. We're even members of the church. In fact, even when the pastor talks to us in the doorway and rebukes us, we listen to him, we honor him, right? And we also don't smoke, we don't drink. Well, we smoke, but we certainly don't smoke cigarettes, right? Right? And we drink, but we certainly don't drink scotch. We drink bourbon or Budweiser. And we don't wear denim skirts, right? Right? You all with me? But we are modest, you know? And we don't we, we may rule our home as a woman, but we hide it. You know? You know? In other words, we have all these sort of biblical laws that we bring to God and to the church, and we say, I'm good enough to take communion. So the Gentiles have their homosexuality in single-use plastic bags, and the Christians have their private education and. Um, Single use plastic bags. And then the Apostle Paul says, What? He says, There is none righteous, not one. Not one. And probably for me, the most interesting part of the book is the section where he shows. Our antagonism to the righteousness of God. Our antagonism. I'd never understood how opposed I was and the, the flock of my congregation to the righteousness of God until I'd listened to Romans about 150 times. And it is relentless in the book of Romans that sinful man refuses to give up his own righteousness. We just refuse. Because we think that clinging to the righteousness of Christ is demeaning to us, you know? We think that somehow uh, it makes us less dignified to depend on God. (laughs) Even though we were made to give glory to God. Somehow we become less, you know? when we cling to God, you know? Well, that doesn't feel like it's manly. You know? What a pathetic person. You remember what the Muslims said to me in London. You remember that story? You know, I'm in London, and it's right during the time of the first Gulf War, and I mean, they are hot and bothered. Down at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, they're hot and bothered, and I'm listening to everybody. And... There is this African-American, but he wasn't American and he wasn't African. So I don't know what to call him. I'm sure there's a proper term. This African-Brit, this black Englishman with an English accent is up there just ripping the United States to shreds, just ripping us to shreds, filled with bile and spite. And hatred, he hated us. And he's going on and on about how awful racism is in the United States, you know. (laughs) And I have to admit that there was just something inside of me that did not take kindly to that man, (laughs) you know. And so I called out, and of course the minute I called out, everybody knew I was American, you know. And I said, to I him, well, what do you know about the United States of America? You've never lived here with us. You go off spouting off about what's wrong with the United States of America. Think about your own country. Don't you go talking to us about our racism. What about your classism? We all love that. That's why we watch Downton Abbey. Well, the minute I opened my mouth, these two Arabs standing near me went into a frenzy against me, and they said, you're American, and I realized that I was now dealing with this African Brit who actually took it pretty well, but now these Arabs were not taking it well at all. And they started, and the, 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 the police officer walked over, because it was so tense. The whole crowd, you ever been, you've opened your mouth in a crowd, and all of a sudden the crowd is no longer interested in what's going on over there. It, it just flips. Everybody turns back, and, and you're at the center. That's what happened. You know, all of a sudden I'm the center of the crowd, and these men are saying, You're an American. Well, then I realized that it was time to be truthful, right? So, what did I say? I said, No, I'm not an American. I am a Christian. I belong to Jesus Christ. Now, do you understand why I said that? And they said, "Oh, and that was worse. You're a Christian, are you? You're a Christian, you know." As this hatred, and they said, "So you worship, you worship the man that couldn't even protect himself. He was so weak, and he got crucified." And I've never heard that before. You know, in America, we're all Christian enough that we don't make fun of Jesus for dying. Right? (laughs) But it sort of made a certain sense to me that if you weren't a Christian, and especially if you were a Muslim, you know, you would listen to that and you... you, Yeah, that does kind of make sense. If he was God, why, why couldn't... Why didn't... I mean... He saved others. Why didn't he save himself? He said he was the son of God. You remember that's what the Jews hounded him on the cross with, that's exactly what they said. And I said, I said it doesn't occur to you, does it, that real strength is not shown by power but by weakness. I said, that's a concept that is absolutely incomprehensible to you, isn't it? I said it softly. And it was clear I wasn't communicating with them. So then I decided to try another more aggressive tactic. <laughs> I went to them, I said, well, okay, if power is your God, you should worship the United States of America. And they started frothing at the mouth. And they were just like screaming at me and trying to ask me what I meant at the same time, which is difficult. And I said, well, by your own admission, you said that power is your God. And I said... The truth is, nobody in this world has the power of the United States of America, and so if you worship power, you should worship my country. And that was it. There was no other conversation. Really, those Muslims spoke for many of us this morning. Truthfully. We will not humble ourselves... Under the cross. We're liars because we've grown up Americans, so we know what to lie about and how. And so we pay lip service to Jesus and to the cross. But we hate admitting that we have nothing to give God. We hate to admit that. But we don't. We don't have anything to give God. He's done it all. And we cannot add anything to it. We must accept the righteousness of God. We must. Well, of course, we're all weaselly. We're all squirrely. Mary Lee and I were sitting on the back deck watching the hummingbirds. I said to her, you know, they remind me of toddlers. It's like they're... And that's the way we are when it comes to faith. The minute we give up on our own righteousness, then we turn faith into righteousness. (laughs) You know, there is a certain inevitability of our moralism and self-reference. And so then we say, okay, fine, I know it's the righteousness of God, but I get that righteousness by putting my faith in him. And so the Apostle Paul says, uh, not quite, no, actually. Uh, Faith is a gift. And the reason you have it is that God, you ready for this, that God chose you. (laughs) You were elected. From before the foundation of the world, God predestined you. Now, how many of us feel predestined? Chosen. Chosen. You know, in the first service while I was preaching, all of a sudden I thought to myself, okay, if you take all the truths of the book of Romans and you choose which one is more scandalous than the other, we really have two candidates for the greatest scandal of the book of Romans. One scandal is that I must give up on my own righteousness. And that is utterly scandalous to me. You know that Martin Luther said that he had to preach through Galatians twice Because he could not get it in his head that righteousness came from God. And so I have to preach it again. I can't get it, right? That's just Martin Luther. And so that's scandalous. We We are made to reject the righteousness of God and to try to bring something in our hands to God. And then on the other hand, you have this one about God's choice that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that God chose Jacob and did not choose Esau. Which truth is more scandalous to us, that God chose those he was to give faith to, or that God will not accept our works, but must accept the works of his son? Okay, which one? Choose, which one is more scandalous to you? Which one? Number one, number two. How many say number one? Raise your hand high. Come on, raise your hand. I can't see any. There's one. There's two. Okay, how many say two? See, that's just weird to me. Because, I don't know. The way I see it is, if you have learned that there's nothing you can give to God, but that you must receive, okay, how big a step is it to receive faith? The, the thing that you have to be careful of if you raise your hand for number two is that you're almost to the point where you're saying God did everything he could, but he didn't choose faith. And so I chose faith, and then I would ask you, well, then how... How can faith be a gift? It says in Ephesians that it's a gift. It's clearly a gift. It's clearly that Abraham was given faith, right? It's clear that God has always, well, all right. He goes from the wrath of God against all ungodliness, the ungodliness of the Gentiles, the ungodliness of the Jews. Then he opens up the fact that we have to give up on our righteousness and we have to throw ourselves at the mercy of God and accept the righteousness of God. Then he says that righteousness comes by faith. Then he says that faith is a gift, and it's a gift that is a result of God's choosing you before the foundation of the universe. You have had God set his love upon you, and that's why he gives you faith, okay? And so you have not, whether it's from the first act of obedience of God, through faith, On to the last act of obedience of God. You have not merited God's mercy. You have been the recipient of it, okay? You're with me. Everybody's with me now, right? God gave it to you. Now, remember how I said that hummingbirds are like toddlers? You know, what? You never have any idea which way they're going to go. You know, it's just insane. And they're so fast. You know, the apostle Paul knows we're a bunch of hummingbirds. And he knows precisely where we're going next, which is, well, if it's grace, then let's sin that grace may abound. In other words, if God has really declared his olly olly in free over his people, then let's have it all olly, olly in free you know let's all give ourselves to what gives us pleasure and happiness because it's all of grace and that is precisely who i am and who you are why well because we're sinful when i was preparing to preach i came across uh, something john calvin said and It's so simple. I was reading it. He wrote this five centuries ago. And I just thought, whoa. So let me read it to you. He says, he's commenting on verse one. And he says, Unholy men, in order to gratify the flesh, anxiously lay hold on whatever is set forth in Scripture, respecting the infinite goodness of God. So sinful men, because we want to do what our flesh wants, are aggressive in grabbing on to what Scripture says about the goodness of God. And listen, that is the church in America today. In the past year, I've had a job of going through all of the men who are in favor of malachoy of soft men in the Presbyterian Church of America, my former denomination. These are all men that protested biblical truth given on the floor of General Assembly. They all walked to the front. They put their names down and as like, I don't know, 180 pastors and 30 elders, something like that. They all signed, including our PCA pastor here in Bloomington, who is no longer there. But he signed, you know, they were all absolutely opposed to the abuse of biblical testimony on the floor of General Assembly. Now, of course, they'd say that wasn't what they were protesting, but you'd hardly be a pastor in the PCA and say that was what you were protesting. So I thought I would go through all of these men. I'd write their names down. I'd find pictures of them. And I would put the church they serve. I'd put the seminary they went to because you should assign some blame to the seminary that produced men who are cowering on homosexuality today. I mean, we all know why they do it. But if you're a place that prepares men to be shepherds of God's flock, protecting them. So you put up the seminary. You put up where they did their undergraduate work, because a lot of them did their undergraduate work at Covenant College, the Denominational College, and other Christian colleges, Taylor University, Wheaton College, you know. And you want to know, don't you? You know, you want to know where, what professors trained them. Then I put up the names of all the pastors they work with and the elders they work with, because you want elders that have the faith to tell their pastor to shut up. Right? Not in the middle of the sermon, but... Right? And so I got it up to here with young hipsters who are planning churches in the PCA. I got to know them really well. I got to know all their web pages, their LinkedIn, their Facebook, their Twitter feed, everything. I got to know them. I got to know them. And you know, almost to to the last man of them, you know what hipsters say who are pastors? What they endlessly say is, God is graceful. And that really is all they say. They never talk about sin. If you were to compare what they say about beer compared to what they say about sin, it would be about one to 100 ratio. They're all about beer. Craft. But now there's even a trend back to good old American, you know, like PBL and Bud and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's one-upping the craft beer gay guys, you know. And what did Calvin say? Calvin said this. He said, unholy men, in order to gratify the flesh, anxiously lay hold on whatever is set forth in Scripture, respecting the infinite goodness of God. And so what we do is we take God now, bear with me, we take God's feminine traits, and we make much of them, and we take his masculine traits and act as if they don't exist. Now you say, oh, Tim, God isn't feminine. And I say, no, all I'm talking about are the parts of God's perfections, his attributes, which sit well with a decadent 2021 crowd. And you know his justice and wrath don't sit well with us. And you know his sovereignty doesn't sit well with us. And you know the doctrine of scripture that the wrath of man praises God doesn't sit well with us because we've spent the last year and a half being wrathful and keeping God out of it. And so what John Calvin is pointing out here is that we have a habit of trying to make God into love without holiness, of trying to make God into long-suffering and merciful without wrath and anger against the wicked. Now, if you think that I'm exaggerating here, you go into your home and you watch the interplay between you and your wife and the discipline of your son. The church in America today despises God's authority. It despises God's wrath. It despises his justice. It despises his truth. The church in America today is full of herself and does not fear God. And it really is awful. And so the Apostle Paul gets to this point in the book. He knows what we're gonna do. He knows that we're gonna sin. that grace may abound. After all, he's opened up the doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, and faith is a gift. And so let's sin that grace may abound. Let's party, which is what God's people did at the foot of Mount Carmel as the law was given to Moses. And so at that point, he stops and he says, oh, no, you don't. No, 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 no. I know you devious hummingbirds, you squirrels. You're weasels? No, no, you don't. Be holy. Be holy. You do not turn the righteousness of God into license. Do not do that. And all of us, when we got to that section in Romans, just passed through it easily because we knew none of us had any tendency at all (laughs) to turn... God's grace into licentiousness. And one of the reasons we didn't think we were doing that is because we don't even know the meaning of the word licentiousness anymore. Just as we don't know the word antinomian anymore, and any time a word has been lost, what that means is that you are completely that. And any time a word has been found... You know, you completely ain't that. And so we've lost licentiousness, and we've gotten passion. We have no passion about anything, and we're completely licentious. And the reason we have no passion is that we're licentious. We've been, the word is, satiated. (laughs) You know, I'll bet you don't know that word either. What does it mean to be satiated? (laughs) Okay, you ready? We'll play like we're eating at our dinner table like I used to do with the kids. Okay, you want to know what satiated means? It means that you've had so much of it that you've become inured. And you say, what does inured mean? I say satiated. Listen, people, we have given in to our lusts and our pleasures so much that men can't even get excited by women. The most exciting thing other than God that there is on the face of this green earth. And the Apostle Paul says, be holy. Be holy. You must be holy, for God is holy. You must be sanctified. You must be set apart. Well, at this point, it gets tense because you've got all this stuff about the wickedness of Jews, the wickedness of Gentiles. You've got all this stuff about the righteousness of God. You have... Let's sin that grace may abound. Then you have Paul saying, no, you must be holy. And as he goes through that, what you feel coming inside of yourself, all of us as we read this and hear it preached, is, oh no, oh please. Holy, holy, I barely can come to church and sing. I feel so weighed down by my sins. You know, one of the things that you know about, I've spent my life with homosexuals, okay? From, from the very beginning, I've spent my life with gays and lesbians. You know what gay men will tell you over and over and over again if they know that you love them? Do you know what they'll tell you? What they'll tell you is, for years I prayed that God would remove the temptation from me. And he didn't do it. And to hell with that. That's the testimony of gay men. They prayed for years that God would take it from them. And all of us then are gay. And we're gay because all of us have these sins. It's like, please, God, take it away. God, why aren't you taking it away? God... Look, I'm not gay. I'm just asking you to take my bitterness away. (laughs) You know? Isn't that easier than being gay? You know? And we all have these sins, and we come into church, and it's communion Sunday. It's like, oh, no. I know I'm not worthy. But the pastor says, come. Jesus commanded it. And so in obedience we come, but we're thinking to ourselves, I'm not clean enough to take the Lord's body and blood, right? This is all of us. And so when the apostle Paul says to us, don't you send the grace me about, you're to be holy, we go, I know, but I can't tolerate it. Oh, woe is me who's going to rescue me from this body of death. And then the Apostle Paul writes, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul completely opens up our own incapacity. We are all quadriplegics. Not just in coming to God in faith, but in becoming holy when he gives us the gift of faith. And he reminds us that the normal Christian life is the hopelessness of the conflict between our two natures. And he even puts himself into that. He even talks about how he doesn't do what he wants to do. And that he does do what he doesn't want to do. And in the last day, I just had this thing. And it's like my wife, I knew what she, I knew what I was, I knew what I was supposed to do. And it wasn't because she was being a dripping faucet at all. She repressed herself. She stifled herself. I saw her stifling. And I went to bed, and it's like, oh, no, oh, no. All night, wake up, blah, blah, blah. And then finally I resolved it in the morning and by God's mercy this time it was resolved on the side of God thanks to the help of my wife. Okay, this is the normal Christian life. This is it. And the good thing is it causes us as we get older more and more to depend on God and to give him glory and not ourselves which is the goal, is the glory of God. Well, the Apostle Paul has been in trouble because he is writing a church that is divided by racism. And he's been holding in abeyance the whole question of the relationship between God's people, the Jews, and the world, or the Gentiles. And so he has work to do. And so he opens up to everyone in the church in Rome the fact that it has always been by faith alone. It's never been by works. And that God isn't changing the plan. And so he shows that Abraham was saved by faith, not by works. And then he talks about the fact that not only was Abraham saved by faith, but that faith was the gift of God and it came by God's choice. So this is when we get into this second scandal of choice, election, predestination. He says, listen, you see it with Pharaoh, you see it with Jacob and Esau, it's God's choice. All right? It's God's choice. When you look at your faith in Jesus Christ, you should give thanks to God that you have it, because he's the one that gave it to you. Okay? Okay? But now he's opened up the issue of the Jews and the Gentiles, right? And he knows he has hanging fire. (laughs) He knows he has a divided congregation. He knows that in the church in Romans and all the rest of the churches, except maybe Jerusalem, who knows, that the majority, the vast majority of people present, when they gather for fellowship and to eat, The agape feast, and to devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles in prayer. He knows that the vast majority of them are Gentiles, and that the Jews are most noticeable in that they're absent. And this seems as if it's a complete abandonment of everything in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with promises to the Jews. So then he has to go back and say, no, 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 no. It's not an abandonment. God's word is not contradicted by this. God has always worked according to his sovereign purpose, and his purposes are really, really inscrutable. Impossible to predict, impossible to control, impossible to understand. And then he gets into them. And it's so fascinating that he even says that God's saving the Gentiles so that the Jews will be jealous. (laughs) You know? I mean, who in their right minds would have come up with that as the explanation of God's relative work of Gentiles and Jews? Well, I think that if we plumb the depths of God's plan, what we're going to find is that God decided he was going to make the Jews jealous. None of us would have come up with that. It doesn't seem worthy of God, you know, God to use jealousy. But the Apostle Paul shows that God is willing to use the racism, the self-centered groupism, the, the, the National and ethnic identity of us vis a vis one another to cause us to look at them and say, and that will make them angry and jealous that we're here and they're not, and sooner or later they're going to come in. And that's essentially what he explains that God's purposes involve making the Jews jealous with the entry of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. Okay? And the Apostle Paul explains that God has not cast off the Jews, but that he will gather the men. And he will do it when he chooses. And he says that the reason God's going to do that is for the sake of their fathers, whom he loves. They're the beloved. You remember that? Well, that relegates the Gentiles. We were smarty pants. We were looking at the Jews and saying, forget you, look at us. <laughs> And the Jews be hearing us, trust me. You can see that all over the world in the last 2,000 years. The Jews be jealous. And he gets done all these explanations. And he ends with, oh, the depth of the riches. Both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And the next word is what? Therefore. 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 I urge you. Now, what is the meaning of the word urge? If you have just taken the family van, and you just got your license, and the van's fairly nice, and you have the first snowfall, and you manage to find a telephone pole to embrace And your father, you come home, you tell your father that you just embraced a telephone pole with his nice fan. Does does your father urge you? No, he doesn't. Not if you're me. No, no, no. You require a few hours to get to the point of urge. I'm just angry. It's like, you did what? When are you going to be more careful? I'm the first, no! The first one! You had to do it, didn't you? Now, I, I didn't yell like that and stuff, but I was not urging. Urge is halfway in between command and plead, urge is tender. Urge is a father that loves his children. And he simply does not command them, but he urges them. And so the first thing I want you to notice is the Apostle Paul is not on a power trip with us here. The Apostle Paul is lowering himself to our level by saying, urge. Okay, I urge you. That's the kind of thing a dad does that owns our hearts if we love our father. I urge you. Oh, yeah, dad. Dad, I felt it before you opened your mouth. Trust me. I urge you. And then that little word that we always pass over because it really has no application to us today, which is the word brethren. Right? I mean, you know, this is the most obvious thing in the world, right? Ms. Editor. Editor i bet all the time you run into that word being used inclusively in the text that you're editing, and you just let that word stand, right? I had, the, I had the experience of doing a chapter for a book with Crossway Books, which is the Gospel Coalition, Complementarian, you know, that whole thing, you know, the conservative publisher. And, and uh, the editor took out all my gender inclusives that were masculine, any time I said brethren or man to refer to a group of men and women, they, they deleted them. And I called up the other I said, Now really, Wayne. Seriously? We spent the last few years fighting to keep the male inclusive in scripture, but when I write, you take it out? <laughs> oh, brother. So the Apostle Paul is so not PC. Too bad the Holy Spirit didn't know what was going to happen today and inspire things in a way that would have been helpful. You know, now, I urge you, brethren and sister. I urge you, men and women, I urge you, siblings. I urge you, people. I urge you, persons. I urge you, humans. But that's not what he says. He says, brother. Why on earth does the Apostle Paul say, brother? Well, for three reasons. Number one, God created Adam first, then Eve, and man is the glory of God, and woman is the glory of man. And this is scripture. I'm just quoting scripture to you. And so our language should reflect the priority of Adam. Adam. It should not be something we're apologetic about. We should look for opportunities to confess that because that's a biblical truth the world hates today. So you don't have to not put on a mask to confess Christ. You can just simply say, brethren. And that will get them even madder. Okay, but are there any other reasons Well, the Apostle Paul, when he uses the word brethren, is lowering himself because he's admitting that like them, he too has been adopted by God, and by virtue of that, he's their brother. He could have said that he was an apostle, and he does say that regularly, but do you understand? Now listen, brothers, I'm being democratic when I say that. Do you you understand that word? Democratic. I'm being, not magnanimous, but I'm being a common folk with you. I'm, I don't have, what's the word, um, pretensions. Listen, brothers. And clearly the Apostle Paul is doing that. He's not commanding, he's urging, and then he says, brothers. He's tender, right? You all see this, right? And so the word brethren is not used to make you angry. It's used to make you see that he understands that all of us are just brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, but there's a third reason, and I want to hit this one this morning. If I'm speaking to a congregation, and I have not grown up in an editor and publisher's home, and I haven't spent decades reading The New Yorker, And I haven't given a lecture to the linguistics department on God language here at IU, which I did once, (laughs) you know, and I don't know all these famous leaders of the Christian world and I haven't had a girlfriend in high school who every time I would say girl, she said woman. Consistently, if I ever said girl, she said woman. And so when I was in high school, I was trained never to say girl. In other words, if I had not had my entire life living in Madison, living in Boulder, my living in wheat, if I had not had my entire life hammered into me, that I was not to use the male inclusive. Are you with me? Okay. Back when I was 30, I was in a presbytery meeting in the PCUSA, and some poor sucker who had just gotten out of seminary got up at a meeting, and he used the word he to refer to pastors. And I mean to tell you, those woman pastors in that room, they were angry, and one after another shamed him publicly. And that poor sucker, he never recovered. And so when I got up, I said, well, since I'm not supposed to say he, and I'm sure not going to say she, I'm just going to say it. And that lowered the, the decibel level a little. Everybody kind of laughed and realized maybe we're getting a little bit too uptight about this thing. Okay. Listen, brothers, anthropologists tell us there has never, ever been a matriarchy. Never. There's never been a matriarchy. Even when the Iron Lady got done with the UK, she did not leave behind a matriarchy. That was the demeaning term that the New York Times used for Margaret Thatcher. They made fun of her for the very thing that they wanted all women to become, which was iron ladies. And there has never been a matriarchy because God is the father. And God has dignified the male of the species with his preeminence. And it is integrally tied to his fatherhood. And you may say, well, you're using the same reason you use for number one. And I say, no, I'm not. No, I'm not doing that. In this room today, there is not a matriarchy. Okay? There are many, many churches in the United States, and China, all around the world that have women pastors now who are preaching, those churches are not a matriarchy. There is no such thing as a matriarchy. All there is is embarrassing and ridiculous attempts to make certain things look as if they're matriarchies, but they're not matriarchies. <laughs> You know, Samuel Johnson was right centuries ago when he said, the amazing thing about women preachers is not that they do it or do it well, but like a dog walking on hind legs, that they do it at all. And that truth is as true today as it was at the time of Samuel Johnson, who did the first dictionary of the English language. Its successor is the OED, if you know what the OED is. it is a function of the world today that we try to act as if and speak as if and think as if the abnormal is the normal. That's the nature of our psyche. And so we make much of the abnormal and act as if the normal doesn't exist. And that's as close as we're ever going to get to creating a matriarchy in God's universe. And the reason is that there is such a thing as common grace. God in his mercy does not allow us to get as bad as we could be. And we should give thanks for that. The rain falls on the unjust and the just. Or I should say the just and the unjust. And part of God's rain that waters the earth is fatherhood. And so you look at the Western world today and we appear to be perfectly focused on killing fatherhood. Are you with me? I mean, it's like an orgy of hatred, patricide. And nevertheless, look here. Look around you. And you know, those of us that are fathers, we think, hey, don't look at me. (laughs) You know, I'm pathetic, right, David? You know? But the fact is, there are fathers here with children. You know? And it's so beautiful. I said to Phil Moyer's sons this morning, one of them was standing out in the foyer and he had this little pad, computer pad in front of him. And oh my goodness. I just always have loved the Moyer boys. I mean, I love Phil. And here he's motorbike. You know, And so his son's standing there, and I look at him, I say, what are you doing? And his brother's next to him, sidled up to him, and he says, I'm waiting for them to play the song so that I can mix it for the foyer. And I said, do you know how beautiful that is? And of course, they're little punks. They haven't learned the word beautiful yet, you know. They don't know women exist. And I said, do you know that there's nothing boys like more than to work with their father? Well, standing next to them was a little boy whose dad just died. And I realized I had a problem. (laughs) You know, because I didn't want to make you sad. You with me? And so I said to him, to the boys, I said, boys, listen. Do you know that the Gospel of John is simply the record of God's son wanting to do the works of his father? That's it, that's Gospel of John. I'm doing my dad's work, says Jesus over and over again. Real weird. Or real normal. (laughs) you know and i said do you know that when i was growing up there was nothing i wanted more than to do the works of my father i ached to work with my father ached and i said i never got to work with him i cut the grass he didn't He went out and spoke. He went to the office and edited and published and spoke. I didn't. And I said, do you know something? I said, finally, one day, my father asked me to work with him. And the three boys, their faces brightened, you know? It's like, oh, great. And I said, and so... I was working at a church out in Boulder when he first asked me. And he was going to speak down at Deer Valley at a conference for doctors and their wives. And they'd bring their children. And at that conference, they needed to have a kids program. My dad called me up and asked me if I would run the kids program while he spoke to the adults. Mary Lee and I would come. I said, you know what happened? What happened is that my father then went down to speak in Mexico. And while he was down there, he had a heart attack. and so he had to cancel the conference I didn't get to work with him and then shortly later he died and I really don't know if there was ever anything um, that was more a disappointment in my life than that you know I was a son and I wanted my father's approval working next to him. And we cannot give in to this wicked world that is trying to destroy the knowledge of the father and the son. And this does not demean women. Women are at their glory when their son wants to work with their husband. And if this is a truth that you hate, you must repent. God has made sons to be fathers. Fathers. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, Why does he say brothers? He says brothers because men are proud and obstinate and cantankerous. And did I say proud? And cantankerous and unteachable and resistant and firm and stubborn. And women are compliant. oh, come on, allow yourself to admit you know it. You say, well, not my mother, not my wife. And I say, oh, yeah, your mother, your wife, compared to your father, your husband. Trust me, God has made women to be women and men to be men. And we all know it. We all know it. And so if I'm preaching to you, and there is a congregation of children, boys and girls, and men, men and women, and there's a point that's particularly difficult. And I know that I have a bunch of proud, obstinate men in the congregation. What do you think I'm going to say? I, I, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters. No, that's not what I'm going to say except the oppressive political correctness which squelches any good inclination in me, I'm going to say, therefore, I urge you, brothers. And do you think there's one woman who won't listen if I say brothers? No, she'll be listening. And she'll be elbowing the man next to her. Did you hear him? He said, brothers. It's so obvious the male inclusive is to get the attention of the obstreperous, cantankinous, stubborn, and unteachable sex. When I speak to a couple, I watch the wife's eyes. Did you know that? And I know what direction to go by whether she's happy or sad with me. It doesn't make women perfect. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God. It's like, okay, okay. At this point, all of us should have an unconditional surrender. We should just say, okay, I'm jello. I'm jello, Paul. What do you want from me? Therefore, Yeah, you did your work, and it was hard, but we made it through. And I honor you for doing that hard work. It was heavy lifting. Therefore, I urge you. Okay, you're not commanding me. Okay, you're urging me. Brethren, I cop to it. I'm a man. I be hearing you. And my wife be elbowing me. Brethren, by the mercies of God, He has been merciful to me. That you present your bodies. So, you remember in the Heidelberg Catechism earlier in the service that I belong what? That I belong what? Body and soul. Let me ask you a question. Did John Coltrane belong to God, body, and soul? You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? You go home, get on YouTube, and listen to John Coltrane's most famous album called Body and Soul. What about Jimi Hendrix? Did he belong to God, body, and soul? Voodoo child? Charlie Watts, I read after he died, and I kind of like the guy. I mean, how many rockers of that level love their wives when they die? What about Mick Jagger? Does he belong to God, body, and soul? How about Dre? How about the influencer that you watch most on social media? They belong to God, body, and soul. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, that you present your bodies, soma, bodies, that you present your bodies, everything you have, you are to present to God as a living sacrifice, a living one. What's that in juxtaposition to? What's that in opposition to? That's in opposition to all the dead animals of the Old Testament. All those dead animals are pointing to you and you are a living sacrifice and you are to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God. This is your logical, your rational, your reasonable act of worship, of service. And so listen, you have God who made you And that creates a certain burden on you to live for his glory, doesn't it? And then you have him give his son on the cross as a sacrifice for your filthy heart. And you won't take up your cross and follow him. No, no, we're weak, but we're not resistant, (laughs) you know? We're not resistant. We're weak. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's what it means to present ourselves a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And it's only our reasonable act of worship. Look what he's done. And are we not going to give ourselves to him? Are we not? Let's pray. Our Father God, we are uh, very, very weak. And Father, we do ask you to be merciful to us. You have shown us our sin, our pride. You have certainly shown us our weakness. And so, Father, command us as you will. And give to us everything that you command.